Awesome. Good evening, everyone. We'll continue with a discussion of the Bhagavat Sandarbha of Srila Jiva Goswami. A few more things to be said about the 41st Anucheda. What brought us to this point in the discussion of the first 41st Anucheda is an understanding conveyed in one of the prayers of Lord Brahma uh, from the 10th Canto. In the conclusion of the Brahma Vimohan Leela, Brahma offered many prayers to the Supreme Lord to, one could say, to try to appease him for uh, the events that had just occurred, basically to make sure that he hadn't gone over the line. Unfortunately, the response he was looking for wasn't easy to attain. And he left without a affirmation from Krishna personally at that time. So you can imagine coming before Lord Krishna and offering prayers and no response. Krishna's standing there non-responsive. Brahma even used Mother Yasoda as a, just like a baby. You used to be a baby. It wasn't too long ago. You're still pretty young and you know, I'm like a baby in your womb. Kind of sets the scene. So, Jiva has really pulled a lot of information out of these particular prayers and the prayers themselves deal with the experience that Brahma had just had. So they deal with all that Brahma realized and Brahma's a pretty sharp guy. He's like the creator of a universe so he, he picked up on a lot of stuff from the revelation he had. And he relayed that information in the prayers that I'm seeing that you're the same both inside and outside and all these manifestations are coming from you. and So much is there. And, and Jiva Goswami has really utilized these prayers in this Bhagavat Sandarbha to highlight a lot of, of very important philosophical conclusions that the serious spiritual student should arrive at in his understanding of the Supreme Lord and how the Supreme Lord manifests himself in so many forms and how those forms should be viewed. So coming to this particular Anucheda, Jiva draws from this 14th chapter, 22nd verse, Brahma says to Lord Krishna, Therefore, this entire universe, which is insubstantial, like a dream, which covers consciousness, which is full of abundant and endless misery, and which, is, which arises out of your Maya potency, still, still appears as real because it is situated in you who are limitless and possess a body that is eternal, full of knowledge and consciousness. So Jiva has used this to bring out the fact that the illusion of Maya is so complete that those involved in universal affairs, universal life within the material realm think that they are experiencing 
spiritual life, as far as the characteristics go, even when they're in ignorance, they think, they're thinking they have knowledge, that the world is giving me knowledge and I can know whatever I want about the music or the arts or philosophy or the sciences of nature or the, the sciences of man based on uh, the workings of the universe. So I think I have knowledge and I think I'm eternal. I'm fine. I got my family. It looks like the prior generations, yes, they died, but in our generation, we're going to solve that problem. There's a good chance I'll be able to experience eternality within this life. And even if that's not in the forefront of their consciousness, certainly death's not in the forefront of their consciousness, so they feel life's good, I'm good. Looks like it's going to go on forever. So much so that even somebody as, as, as spiritually dedicated and uh, spiritually knowledgeable as Eudistir said, this is the greatest illusion in the world. People think everybody around me is going to die, but me, I'm not. And they honestly have this sense about their existence even up to the point that they're lying on their deathbed, they think, I'll be saved. Something will happen. It's okay. Some. Well, there's some of that in there, but also they think the body's eternal. That's the illusion of it. They're thinking the body's eternal. They don't have the majority are in ignorance of the soul. So they may have a sense of it because... They do have a spiritual reality, but their sense of it is completely upside down. And then we come to bliss. I'm happy. Even the pig in stool is like, hey, I'm happy. He's happy with his meal. He's happy with his mate. He's happy with all his little kids. He's a happy camper. And we look at him and say, you know, you're living in a pool of mud. <laughs> It's not really, even this, it smells horrid, but you're happy. Jiva uses this verse to draw out that comparison between the mentality of the materialist and the mentality of the spiritualist. And how, you know, that those features of the Supreme Lord of eternity, knowledge, and bliss are experienced in ignorance by the materialist, even though it's asat, achit, and nirananda, to them they think it's satchit ananda. So we discussed a lot of the conclusions, and we'll finish up a couple more things that need to be need that go to reinforce uh, what Jiva Goswami has presented. We'll begin with a saying by Parasaramuni from the Vishnu Purana. Parasara says, The same object induces misery, happiness, envy, and anger in different people. How can one categorically determine the nature of an object? One particular object sometimes even invokes love, pain, anger, and happiness in the same person. 
one particular same object can bring out these emotional responses in the same person. What to speak of the differing responses that different people have to the same experience. Therefore, material objects do not have the capacity to grant happiness or inflict pain. Feelings of happiness and distress are simply mental states. And we have a Sanskrit terminology for this, which is vritti, an impression on the mind. And based upon prior impressions, when we experience something within the world around us, we immediately, the mind starts to do its thing. Happy, sad, hot, cold, all based on these different mental impressions from past experiences, which we call vritti. And if you remember, earlier Jiva Goswami touched upon this. And we discussed at that time the fact that in a young child, where the vritti hasn't yet come to the forefront, they have they don't they don't have that relational they don't arrive at those relational conclusions quite yet. And a lot of the psychology of how the mind works has been brought out through these different anachetas that we've studied up to this point in the Sandarbhas. How these mental impressions are formulated and how important it is for us to see them for what they are. And that's what Parasara Muni is bringing out in this verse. You need to see that when you experience things and you have an emotional reaction, because everything is happening in the mind, isn't it? You have an emotional reaction to, to your experiences in life. So he's saying, look at it. Sometimes, this, sometimes the same thing will give you happiness the next time it'll give you distress. You see somebody you were in love with and you brought you the greatest joy. Five years later, you see the same person and it's like, ah! You run to the opposite side of the street. Oh my God, there she is. She wants to break my heart again. I won't let it happen. Let me hide. Let me run as far away. In the beginning, you were running towards her. And now you're running away. The same, the same thing as the point Parasar is making. Happiness, distress, envy, anger. You know, from the same object. These different material states are referred to as vritti. Material conceptions based upon previous impressions. But if we have developed the eye of wisdom, jhana chakshush, we will not be thus affected. And Krishna says to Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, Yehi samsparsa japoga dukkha yonaya evati adyantavanta kanteya 
Nateshu Ramate Buddha. An intelligent person does not take pleasure in the sources of misery, which are due to contact with the material senses. O son of Kunti, such pleasures have a beginning and an end, and so the wise man does not delight in them. So the devotee, he develops fine discrimination, and with that fine discrimination, he's able to perceive everything as simply the energy of the Lord. As he advances in spirituality, it come, he comes to a point, and Kapila brings this point out in his, in his discussion with his mother, Devahuti, that the yogi, he comes to such a point of fine discrimination that his material circumstances only seen, all of them are only seen as the Supreme Lord's energy. He becomes completely indifferent. Imagine the level of consciousness where that complete indifference is. Now, that complete indifference is also there for the bhakti. But in the context of Kapila's instructions, at one point he talks about it in context of the astanga yogi who gets such great control of his mind that he's not affected by anything in the world. He doesn't even know what he's doing. And the analogy is used there like a drunkard. He is so much tuned in to seeing only spirituality in existence that from a material viewpoint, he's like a, a fall-down drunk. Meaning that not, he doesn't, the, the outside world doesn't even, it's like he doesn't even know. I don't know if you've ever seen a drunk or been a drunk, but if you have, they can come a point where you're you're like passed out. You could lay in a gutter with the filth, and and you you could you don't even know you're there. You don't even know how you got in the stoop of your apartment the next morning, but you wake up outside and it's like you know. So this is what happens. The spiritualist can come to this level of indifferences to the vrittis of material existence. And for the devotee, he also becomes, and we see categories, the devotees have different categories, kanista, majam, and uttama. And the most of our experience during the stage of sadhana bhakti is with Majjum Adhikaris. Now we may, our experience is that of associating for advancement with Majjum Adhikaris. Now those Majjums may be Uttamas, but they've turned off intentionally, consciously, deliberately the fact that they have no concern for material existence, and they can't di differentiate. At the stage of Uttama Bhakti, there's no distinction between devotee and non-devotee. And this would make Krishna happy, and this would make Krishna sad, on the material plane. None of that's there. They see everybody as worshipping Krishna. Even the drunkard is worshipping Krishna. 
They have no, no contact. Imagine that level of the Uttama Adhikari. He's simply seeing nothing but Vaikuntha wherever he looks. That's his experience. Even if he's still in the material world and it appears that his Parabdha karma is, is winding up. He's indifferent to it. It's not affecting him at all. And there are different ways to look at that, but we'll continue with this discourse tonight. This, generally, the point I'm making here is the Uttama Adhikari comes down and interacts with the Vaishnav community on the Mudjim platform for our benefit. So, our experience as sadhana bhaktas is with Madhyamadhikaris. And as we advance, we may be able to glimpse, oh, there's devotees amongst us, sadhus, who are actually on a much higher platform, but they're kind enough to have not gone off into a cave or into a like Lord Chaitanya, what is that room? Gambira. The Gambira, yes. Some say the world is false. So there's a class of transcendentalists, Mithya. See the world is false. And in realization, we awaken. The world's like a dream, and one day we're going to wake up, and the falsity of material, it's just going to go, it'll just evaporate. Just like when I wake up in the morning, the dream will be gone. What will there be? What do they believe there'll be? They At that point, they will be able to enter into Brahman. Because generally the people that look at the material world as false have the misconceptions put forward by Sankaracharya. They never wake up. Okay, that we have to understand because of the misconceptions. Those misconceptions also carry offensive attitudes towards the Supreme Lord. They're not true what we would call Brahmavadis who have a legitimate claim to to uh, Sayuja liberation because they follow the the proper under they have the right conceptual orientation and they follow the right discipline which includes sadhana on the Supreme Lord up to the point that they, again, we go back to Vishwanath and how he's seen this verse. Also from the teachings of Lord Kapila, it's interesting. This whole section of the third canto, and that verse appears there, how the yogi practices sadhana, and then he has to, he detaches his hook-like mind from the form of the Lord and the bhava, Vishwanath brings out, that he experiences in that worship of through sadhana of the Supreme. So he actually, now sometimes it works for the Brahma body. We see that in this case of Sukadeva Goswami that he heard some verses from the Bhagavatam, which are the same as the face of the Lord, right? So he actually, the 10th canto is considered 
the face of the Lord. Or with the Kumaras, who actually were completely Jeevan Muktas, and then they went to Vaikuntha. And they were blessed by the Lord's devotees, Jaya and Vijaya. Or, you know, they were blessed. They cursed them and that, that was a, their blessing because the Lord appeared before them. Just see how kind the devotees are. So sometimes the Brahmavadi will become the Bhakta and sometimes not. There are those instances where no, they they release their mind from the from the spiritual enjoyment of the association, the darshan of the Lord, just to merge. Lord Brahma does not accept this view, this view that the world is false. Asat does not mean falsehood, mithya. Rather, it means transient, impermanent. This world is a potency of the Lord. Maya means inconceivable power and not magic. It's the power of the Supreme Lord. But to mistake inert, endlessly mutable matter for eternal transcendence is illusion. That's the mythia. The true illusion is when we accept the world as, as a transcendental manifestation. So the Mayavadis, Mayavadis, not Brahmavadis, they see the world as an illusion. The material world is not mithya, as described in the slogan of the Brahmavad, Brahmasatyam Jagat Mithya. What is mithya, rather, is to view it independently of Brahman. The word myth, you know, mithya meaning illusion, the world is not an illusion. And we should not see it as independent of the energy of the Supreme. It is a manifestation of Brahman. It's an energy of the Supreme Lord. It doesn't act independently. It's supervised energy. Okay, there's somebody standing in the powerhouse pulling the switches. There's delegated personalities in charge of all the aspects of the material energy. If it's an illusion, what do you need to have a sun god or a moon god to control the mind or someone to control the oceans or the winds? What's the need? It's just a, it's a dream. There's no necessity for those personalities that have been, been empowered by the Supreme Brahman to manifest the material man manifestation and, and to keep it, to keep everything in balance and to allow us to have an interface with the material energy. Without the existence of the Lord, the universe would have no being, just like the horns of a rabbit. Let's take that to the nth degree. So in order to take it to the nth degree, we're going to read something that was composed by Kavi Kanapur in the Alankar Kastuba. This son of a barren woman appears so beautiful with a chaplet of sky flowers on his head holding a bow made from rabbit horns. 
and attired in garments made from the hair of a tortoise. Kavi Kanapur's taken this idea just to show its its foolishness. If you think the material world is false, then you could buy into this. Just as this verse is meaningless, the world would similarly have no meaning without the Lord's existence. Vistabhyahamidam kritsnam ekam sena stitojigat. It's from the Gita, 10th chapter. With a single fragment of myself, I pervade and support this entire universe. Krishna would not make that statement if, if he had no contact with the material manifestation. Moving ahead to the 42nd Anucheda, Krishna's form can manifest in innumerable places simultaneously. The Sambandha, the point being made, the philosophical conclusion being put forward, in this way, it has been established that the Lord's medium-sized body is all-pervading, vibhutva, by showing that it is the support of everything. This all-pervading feature will now be demonstrated by exhibiting its quality of being present everywhere, sarvakata. So, some evidence for the fact that the Lord can manifest his form anywhere and everywhere. And that, indeed, it's all-pervading. So some examples that really bring this home. And now we're going to move to other sections of the Bhagavat for our praman, our evidences, and leave behind Brahma's prayers. Narda Muni thought, it is amazing that Krishna has alone, in a single body, been able to separately marry 16,000 wives, each in their individual palaces, and to do so simultaneously, present separately in each of these houses. So this is the first instance of Narada's amazement at Krishna's Dwarka Leela, is this marriage of the Supreme Lord to 16,000 queens and 16,000 palaces at, a, at the same time. Well, there's an objection. So what? Couldn't any master of yoga perfection or paranormal power, Yogeshwar, a Yogeshwar, somebody that can control uh, and has mystic perfections, do the same thing by manifesting various forms simultaneously? What do you, whose lotus feet are worshipped by Yogeshwaras, find is so extraordinary? You yourself are a mystic yogi. So, Narada, you already have ex this direct experience of being in two places at once. What's the big deal? Narada answers, he did all this in a single body, Akena Vapusa. According to Uddhava, it is well known that he accepted a particular suitable form for each of the princesses. He's in the same body, is the point 
that's being put forth. It's manifested differently, just like Brahma experienced when those forms of Vishnu came out, but now you have Krishna's form being manifest. And each one's particular to the particular wife that's being married. Krishna underwent the wedding ceremony in just one human-like form, which was seen differently at different places. Thus, the greatest cause for astonishment was that this one human-like form was present simultaneously. Sri Sukha states elsewhere, everything I'm reading now is from Jiva's actual Anacheda. Then, assuming as many forms as there were brides, Bhagavad Sri Krishna married all the princesses at the same auspicious moment, each in her own palace. That's from the Bhagavatam, that verse. Sridhar Swami comments on an earlier verse in the Bhagavatam, because he is the master of all supreme opulence, he pervades everything with just one form. This refers to the Lord's Prakash manifestations. Lagu Bhagavatam Rita the appearance of a single form in many places at the same time, but which is in all respects the same essential form, Sarup of the Lord, is called Prakash. This is the difference between the Lord's Prakash and the forms that appear different, such as Narayan. So when Krishna manifests the same form in different places, at the same time, those are called Prakash manifestations. But they're not like the yogic manifestations. The yogic manifestations perform the same activity. In one place it says eight, but we'll also come to an example here in this commentary where there's more. Sure. Okay, so if Satyabhama was visiting Rukmini's Krishna is there. Would Satyabhama see Rukmini's Krishna? Or would she see her Krishna? There's no difference between her Krishna and Rukmini's Krishna. They're the same Krishna. But he acts and appears differently. He appears differently. Yeah. Ah, there's the key. So would Satyabhama see her Krishna? Yes. And Rukmini would see her Krishna. When you're looking at the cloth from your angle, what are you seeing? So we've already been given this analogy. Your angle's giving you pink and my angle's giving me blue. I'm satisfied with blue. Blue is the color of the dress. You're seeing pink. And you're satisfied with pink. It's the same cloth. It's the same Krishna. We're seeing differently. And what's creating that sight? The degree of our bhava. How deep is our love? What is the relationship of our love? In what sty bhava is that love? 
So you're seeing the same Krishna, the same Krishna is being seen in the assemblies of the devotees. Sometimes there'll be a prakash just because it's convenient for the circumstance, like a rasa dance. But all the gopis were dre- were dancing with Krishna directly. Now from a ontological viewpoint, you'd say, well, the Lord manifested different prakash forms in order to accommodate those visions. But it's Krishna. It's one Krishna. He's still one. Even though he's medium-sized here and there and everywhere, he's still that one supreme person. Sujiva Goswami establishes that the Lord's medium-sized body is the support of everything and is thus all-pervading. This he will discuss in three Anuchedas. So this is the first of three that's going to bring out this particular understanding. So how did this happen with the 16,000 wives? There was a demon, Mamasura, and he was so powerful that he troubled all the kings of the world, even the devas. And uh, he was so troublesome and so powerful in his troublesomeness, <laughs> his demoniac potencies, that Indra approached Krishna and Dwarka and said, you got to do something about this guy. And Krishna mounted Garuda and said, let's go. And he went to this place and he sl- slayed him. And we defined that he had a huge, huge, palace full of all these princesses of all the kings. He had collected quite a harem, to say the least. He kidnapped 16,000 princesses from these various kings. Astrologically, Krishna had to marry them. He had no alternative. You know, No one else would have anything to do with them. But um, Krishna had no problem. He, so he took them back and uh, he, he because of their desire uh, to have a relationship with him, uh, he married them. Now, for a marriage to be successful, it needs to be at the proper time of day. Mahorta. He could have married them one day after another. At the same Mahorta. Of course, that would have taken 43 years, 10 months, and 5 days. So... Instead of doing that, um, he used his yogic power, and he made, and he manifest Prakash, and he married them all at the same Mahurta on the same day. Now let's listen to a conversational dialogue that Jiva puts forth in this Anucheda. Why was Narada astonished? Answer: Because Krishna had married sixteen thousand wives. What's the then? The doubt comes forward. What's so surprising about that? Many kings throughout history have had hundreds and even thousands of wives. Answer, but the queens were in 16,000 different palaces. Doubt, what's so wonderful about that? He was a king possessing great riches. He was able to afford a palace for each of his queens. Answer, he married them with individual wedding ceremonies and each of these 16,000 palaces. Doubt. That could be managed by going from one palace to another. So what is so amazing? Answer. 
he did it precisely the same moment at the same auspicious muhurta. Doubt. Krishna's Yogeshwar, the master of yogic power. Accomplished yogis can expand into many bodies, called Kavya Vyuha. He could easily have expanded into 16,000 such Kavya Vyuhas to participate in these rituals. Answer. No, he did not expand into many different bodies. He married them simultaneously in one body. This is what was so surprising to Narada. Doubt. He could have produced 32,000 hands, like in the Virat form, and accepted 16,000 wives in 16,000 houses simultaneously. Answer. No. He had a suitable form for each woman, and yet these were all one and the same form. This is confirmed in the statements of Sukadev Goswami and Sri Uddhava, cited in this Anucheda. There's a little bit more, but I'll stop there for the evening. Any questions? Thank you so much for your association. Hare Krishna.